Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would unite my heart to fear your name in this time of preaching. Give me grace, Lord, that I would not rely upon what I feel, but I would rely upon the the truthfulness of your word and the power of your spirit, because Lord, who is sufficient for these things? I'm not, no one else is, but yet you have chosen for thousands of years now to edify your people through the ministry of your word being preached through men unworthy to preach it. So often, Lord, I forget that a miracle happens in this time and I just pray, God, that you would help us have the wonder of it, of the effectual work of your word in our hearts. Forgive us where we grow cold to that, where we don't have the affections to match the intensity of that truth. So in your kindness, God, I pray that you would show us grace ordinary means such as opening your word and someone preaching about so that we are built up. We pray that you would do that in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, please turn in your copy of God's holy and perfect word to Genesis chapter 43. If you've been with us, you know we're making our way through this classic narrative of Joseph and his brothers. Joseph has been sold into slavery in Egypt by his brothers. You know the story. He spent 13 years in various trials, slavery, prison, being accused wrongfully. But in God's providence, he's eventually positioned to the highest, the second highest seat in Egypt behind the Pharaoh himself. No one has more power than Joseph except for Pharaoh. And in our last text, two weeks ago, his brothers, now 20 years after they have sold him into slavery, his brothers come to Egypt to buy food because the world is in a famine. And Egypt is the only source of food. You remember this? It's been 20 years at this point, and now the brothers come to buy food from none other than the man they sold into slavery, their own brother. But remember, they don't recognize him. They still don't know that the one they're buying grain from is their brother, yet he does. And so Joseph messes with them. You remember as he tests them. And he takes one of their brothers captive, Simeon, He's going to hold him hostage until they can go back home to get their younger brother, Benjamin. And he says, until I see your younger brother, I will not let Simeon go. And so they go back having no food. They can't convince Jacob at first to let them have Benjamin, but soon they're out of food again and they have no other choice. And so they are about to go back to Egypt with Benjamin to free Simeon. 
And this is where we stopped the last time. Now, the next part of this narrative is like a sequel to the previous part in many ways because we're going to see that they're going to retrace their steps. The next part is basically part two of the narrative. Just as before, the brothers went to Egypt, they bow before Joseph, their brother, in order to buy food. And now the narrative that we're going to pick up reading this morning, they're going back to Egypt a second time to buy food, to bow down before Joseph, only this time their brother's hostage in Egypt. And so we're immediately confronted as readers with this thought. It didn't go well the first time. They're really skeptical about going back the second time. This doesn't look good for them. Now, before we get into the, the sequel of this narrative, I want you to remember a couple of things that we know already. Number one, the brothers are guilty. There's no way around that. They sold their brother into slavery some 20 years before, and now they are feeling the consequences of their sinful choice. So you remember the last sermon, if you were here, they have felt the distress of their sin and they are feeling the dilemma of it now. What do we do? And so they are guilty. We need to remember that as we're walking through this narrative. There's no explaining it away. They are guilty. And the second thing I want you to be mindful of is this. What happens to the guilty? Well, the guilty are usually the ones who receive condemnation. They are usually the one who receive proper punishment. It ends in disaster, tragedy for them with a life sentence or a death sentence or some sort of punishment. The guilty do not go unpunished. And so the brothers are guilty. And secondly, what will happen to them? So you put those two things together. They're going back to Egypt to stand before this most powerful man. They are guilty of their sins. What will this ruler do? It would be fitting to receive condemnation, punishment, further disaster and dilemma and distress of sin, but it's not what they get. And this is where the narrative and the sequel to part two gives us a twist. And when it comes, it leaves us saying, huh, I didn't see that coming. Because they're guilty and we expect them to be condemned. But actually in the second part of the narrative, we see these distressed brothers in this dilemma of their sin, not receive damnation, but the delight of grace. So part one, distress and dilemma of sin. Part two, delight of grace. Now, this passage is a large chunk of scripture. So today I'm, I'm choosing to take a a survey approach. I'm not going to be as much in the details. But in doing so, I think you'll see the banner of grace that flies over this section of Scripture. We, we Christians talk a lot about grace. It's a good biblical word. It's a word that we should use. But if we're not precise in our wording and in being intentional in our thinking, it can easily just become a religious word that we toss around. Grace, grace. God's grace. All right? know the old hymn we can just sing about it you can just run over us like water rushing over our feet in a in a river 
But it's narratives like this one that shake us out of the rudimentary uses of the word and forces us to slow down to meditate on its truth so that we don't just accept it as a word, grace, but we cherish it as a reality. The Bible is a book of grace. This book provides in in our language a concept of grace, but it's the actual individual narratives that provide the specifics. Like holding out a beautiful diamond and we examine the particularities of that diamond. When's the last time you've seen a diamond, you you see it from a distance and oh, that's beautiful, but to bring it in close and to examine it. The Atlanta Braves just released their World Series ring has 755 diamonds on it. Each particularly examined showing the beauty of the stone. This is what grace, grace is is easily just washing over us, but we need to see the specifics of narrative to say, wait a minute, wow, do you see that element? So with that in mind, I want to walk through this narrative focusing on distinct characteristics of God's grace. So we're going to start in Genesis chapter 43, looking in verse 15. Now remember, the brothers are headed back to Egypt for the second time. They want to free their captured brother Simeon. Let's see what happens. Genesis 43, verse 15. So the men took this present And they took double the money with them and Benjamin. They arose and went down to Egypt and stood before Joseph. When Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to the steward of his house, bring the men into the house and slaughter an animal and make ready for the men are to dine with me at noon. The man did as Joseph told him and brought the men to Joseph's house. And the men were afraid because they were brought to Joseph's house and they said, it is because of the money which was replaced in our sacks the first time that we were brought in so that he may assault us and fall upon us to make us servants and seize our donkeys. So they went up to the steward of Joseph's house and spoke with him at the door of the house and said, oh my Lord, we came down the first time to buy food. And when we came to the lodging place, we opened our sacks and there was each man's money in the mouth of his sacks, our money in full weight. So we have brought it again with us and we have brought other money down with us to buy food. We do not know who put our money in our sacks. Verse 23, he replied, peace to you. Do not be afraid. Your God and the God of your father has put treasure in your sacks for you. I received your money. Then he brought Simeon out to them. And when the man had brought the men into Joseph's house and given them water and they had washed their feet and when he had given their donkeys fodder, they prepared and the present for Joseph's coming at noon for they had heard that they should eat bread there. Verse 26, when Joseph came home, they brought into the house to him the present that they had with them and bowed down to him to the ground. And he inquired about their welfare and said, is your father well, the old man of whom you spoke, is he still alive? They said, your servant, our father is well, he is still alive. And they bowed their heads and prostrated themselves. And he lifted up his eyes and saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son, and said, is this your youngest brother of whom you spoke to me? God, be gracious to you, my son. 
Then Joseph hurried out, for his compassion grew warm for his brother. And he sought a place to weep. And he entered his chamber and wept there. Verse 31, then he washed his face and came out. And controlling himself, he said, serve the food. They served him by himself and them by themselves. And the Egyptians who ate with him by themselves, because the Egyptians could not eat with the Hebrews, for that is an abomination to the Egyptians. And they sat before him, the firstborn according to his birthright, and the youngest according to his youth. And the men looked at one another in amazement. Portions were taken from, to them from Joseph's table, but Benjamin's portion was five times as much as any of theirs. And they drank and were merry with him. Well, let's pause here. I want to argue that the theme of this first part of the narrative is summarized in the last sentence of verse 33. And the men looked at one another in amazement. Now, why are the brothers amazed? Or put most simply, the brothers are amazed by grace. They can't believe what's happening to them. I mean, they're in this palace and, and they're, they're pinching themselves. There's no way this is real. Now, why are they amazed? What happens to them? Well, we start back in 15, just like before. Once again, the brothers are headed down to Egypt to stand before Joseph. It's just like their first trip, but this time they have Benjamin just as Joseph commanded them. And also different this time, it's not taking place in the public square, but where? In Joseph's home. Verse 16 shows Joseph privately saying to the servants, prepare a meal, these men will dine with me. And right away, this is not what is expected. Remember last time, Joseph accused them of being spies. He spoke sternly to them. He now wants to have dinner with them. And so notice the brother's reaction in verse 18. The men were afraid because they were brought to Joseph's house. This was not normal. Your average everyday Egyptian would not be found in this palace, let alone these Hebrews. It's one thing to interact with Joseph in the public square, to bow before him in open air where there's clear distance between his royalty and, and their humility. It's another thing to be brought into an intimate setting of his home. His elaborate home where servants are busy preparing food and other employees are managing the, the work of the house. And here we have these 10 dirty from travel Hebrews tip towing through this mansion. You can sort of imagine it where they're looking around at all the, the, the fancy elaborate things that they find in Joseph's home and they're wondering what in the world are we doing here? Feeling completely out of place. And they think in verse 18, he must be planning to assault us. He's getting this inside. He's going to steal our possessions. He's going to make us servants. <laughs> it's been good knowing you boys. And so in verse 19 to 22, they go over basically like to the house butler. 
He's standing over by the door. They fearfully say, sir, we just came to buy food. Like, that's, that's all we want. On our way back, we discovered money in our bags, and we know it looks really bad, but it would look worse if we didn't tell you. So we're telling you now. Someone put the money back in our bags, and it looks like we stole it, but we didn't steal it. All we want is to give you your money back, to get our brother, to get the food, and to go home. We, we mean no harm. Just, just see us out the side door, and we'll be fine with that. Thank you for your hospitality, but just let us go. And as you can imagine, they're trying to sneak away. The servant says in verse 23, surprisingly, peace be to you, do not be afraid. Your God and the God of your father has put treasure in your sack. Basically, guys, calm down. Don't get worked up here. God has control. Don't worry, just, just hang tight. And now at this point, verse 23, Simeon is brought out to them. The brothers begin to wait for Joseph to come home. Now I want you to notice the grace that is extended to these brothers. So remember I told you, they are guilty. You and I both know what they did to Joseph. Joseph knows what they have done to him. And yet, watch throughout this text the grace that is extended. First of all, when they enter into Egypt, Joseph makes plans to prepare a feast for them. That wasn't the deal. Remember what the original deal was? Go get your brother. If you bring him back, I'll release your brother. Maybe you can buy some more food. Maybe I'll let you go on your way. And yet now, Joseph goes over the top. It's not enough just to talk to them. I want to dine with them. Second, they're brought into the royal home. This would have been disturbing for the brothers. You can see it was disturbing. What are they planning to do? They're planning to, planning to assault us. Like, keep, a, keep an eye on your backs, guys. Like, what is going on? This is disturbing to them. It's one thing to meet the president. It's another thing to have him invite you into his personal home to have dinner with him. To them, something is off. No, 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 we don't trust this. But Joseph is just lavishing on grace. Third, they're put at ease as they wait for Joseph. You know, they try to explain their side of the story to the butler. You know, this is what we're doing. You don't have to believe us, but I'm just telling you it's true. And, and how easy would it have been for the steward to say, yeah, well, we'll see what the master has to say about that when he gets home. No, instead... He comforts them, and not just general comfort like, guys, it'll be okay, or don't get too worried, but he comforts them with the truth of God, their God, your God, the God of your Father. It's in control here. Imagine that. In the pagan land of Egypt, in Joseph's royal home, the second highest position in the land even has the servants of the house recognizing the sovereignty and control of God. Like this is how we should pray for our nations. Like this is how we should say, God, would you so move that even the highest position in our lands would recognize your control, even so that people who are working under them would say, yes, he recognizes God, I recognize God, because God is supreme, would you bring that to our land? That's how we should pray for our land. 
It's amazing. In this pagan nation, they go to the steward and the steward comforts them with the reality of God. Grace. Fourth, as they're waiting, they're given water. Their feet are washed. I mean, dirty, foreign feet, what they would be considered stepping into a royal home and now they're exalted to say, let me wash your feet. Who does that remind you of? Peter, no, 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 Jesus, you're not washing my feet. Jesus gets lower. They're well watered, they're fed, they're cleansed. The donkeys are all fed. Imagine they're sitting on the chair. They're getting their feet nice and washed and rubbed. <laughs> Imagine their faces like, what in the world is going on? Fifth, Joseph comes home and he graciously receives them. Verse 28 and 29, you see this. Whereas before he speaks sternly to them, accuses them of being spies, this time he's gracious. How's your dad doing? Is he still well? Oh, this is your younger brother. Nice to meet you. God's blessings upon you. And then sixth, an element of grace. They have an elaborate feast with this high-ranking official. A feast so big that Benjamin's portion is able to be five times bigger And remember, they don't know this guy as their brother. To them, he's just a stranger. And here they are in this palace in Egypt. They're well-fed. They're clean. They're groomed. They have everything they can need. They're sitting with him eating dinner. And they must be thinking, we don't deserve this. We sent our brother to Egypt and sold him. And yet, what's going on? And verse 33 summarizes it. And they looked at one another in amazement. They know they don't deserve it. And yet they're amazed by the elements of grace they are receiving. Friends, these elements of grace show us a portion of God's grace towards sinners. I mean, sure, the first layer here in the story is Joseph giving grace to his brothers, but we know that this is God giving grace to these brothers through Joseph giving them grace. And this is a theme that's developed and traced all throughout Scripture. Like I told you, this book provides the concept of grace for you, and the individual narratives provide the specifics. The theme that's traced all the way through Scripture is how God deals with sinners. So I would ask you, brothers and sisters, are you amazed by grace? Amazing is one of those words that we also toss around in our vocabulary, probably too often. You can probably hear me talk about on a day like today, boy, the master's is amazing, right? Or some may say, man, this, this weather is amazing if it were a little cool, a little warmer today. 
Or, oh man, the food is amazing. Is it really? <laughs> like, I mean, food is food. It's often delicious. The weather is every day. It's often lovely. The Masters is beautiful, but it's a golf course. Last year, I saw the Grand Canyon for the first time. And when I saw it, well, it was grand. It was big. I knew that it was going to be big. I knew that it was going to be something neat to see. If there's ever underestimating the Grand Canyon, say the Grand Canyon is neat to see. It, it, it sorely misses the mark. We parked and we began to walk on the sidewalk. There's a layer of trees. If you've ever been there, maybe if you parked where I was, there's at least a layer of trees there. You park, you walk the sidewalk, you eventually have to go through the layer of trees and you, you come through the layer of trees and there she sits in all her glory. <laughs> and me, I, I guess, never seeing it, never knowing what to expect. I knew it would be big. I knew it would be fun. I knew it would be neat. But when I stepped through the trees and I saw the Grand Canyon, that was amazing. I literally said in my mind, oh my God, in the most appropriate and worshipful of ways. Because when you see the grandeur of the Grand Canyon, in all of its beauty, in all of the, in the lenses of which God wants you to see it in, you don't just stop and say, wow, is that big? You say, wow, is God big? Wow, is God amazing that he can hold this Grand Canyon in his hand, that he can run his fingers through all of his crevices? You can look at the seas that fill our, our globe and all the water that holds them and the, the scripture says he can hold them in the palm of his hand and just play little splash games. Like what? No, God is amazing. Food is just food. The masters is beautiful. The weather is unpredictable. The Grand Canyon, the God who created the Grand Canyon, stunning. And I say all that to say, amazing. Think about that word, amazing, and yet we talk about what? Amazing grace. When we think of the concept of grace in Scripture, it is not so much a concept that we think, wow, this food is amazing, or wow, this golf course is amazing, or the weather is amazing. No, if we can grasp the concept of grace in Scripture, we are left stepping back saying, wow, that is amazing like the Grand Canyon. Like OMG in the worshipful sense, amazing. How many people just assume grace and are not amazed by it? This is, this is a struggle of my heart that I hate about my sinful pride is that so often I'm just numb to it. Oh yeah, God's forgiving. It's kind of what he does. I'll just do it one more time. God will forgive me. He's gracious. I messed up. Yeah, God understands. 
You know, well, they're in a much better place now. God is gracious. How often do we take a concept of grace and we just assume it and we're not amazed by it? Like we just, oh, oh, hum, let's go to church this morning. Listen, I'm talking to myself. How often do I see the words on the screen and I hear the music start playing and I go first to, man, how do I feel? I'm just, I'm just not really feeling it this morning. I'm just, just, the emotions just don't match. No, 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 no. Do I understand the depth of my sin and where I was and what God did to save me? It's so frustrating in my heart. One of the joys of heaven will be not having frustration anymore to struggle grasping the grandeur of God. That we will see it in all of its glory and we will exult in it like we should. Heaven's not good because of the things we will get. Heaven is good because we will get God and we will respond to him the way we should. And full of joy and full of satisfaction. We will be amazed in the truest sense of the word. Why is grace amazing? Why? Why is it so stunning to you and me as a sinner? Well, put yourself in these brothers' guilty shoes just for a moment. Grace is amazing because through Christ, though we deserve condemnation, God hosts a meal for us at the table. Though we deserve the dungeon, he brings us into his royal house. Though we deserve abandonment and punishment, God nourishes our soul. He washes our feet. He provides for our needs. God washes our feet. Though we deserve harsh words and a stern rebuke, God warmly receives us. And through Christ, though we deserve wrath, God provides an overflowing feast of his goodness. And as you think about the grace that God has given to you as a believer, do you respond like the brothers walking into the royal palace, looking around in amazement like, I do not belong here? Brothers and sisters, if you find yourself having trouble being amazed at God's grace to you, you may be assuming that you deserve it. You may be assuming that your sin's not all that bad, that the position you were in wasn't all that far. You may be assuming that the gap between God's holiness and your sinfulness really isn't that big. And the, the rescue he performed really wasn't that great. Rather to know our depths of our sin, to know the the just deserving punishment that we should receive, knowing that when we're brought into the palace, we don't deserve it. It's then that we can be amazed that God would do this. Are you amazed by God's grace? Well, after verse 34, we may think all has been settled. 
Chapter 43 ends, the brothers are joyfully celebrating at the table together. They're drinking and having dinner, and it may be a good stop, spot to stop the story right there, but it doesn't, because there's an important detail still missing. What is it? The brothers think they're having this party with this official. They don't know it's their brother. In their minds, they're just having really, a really fun, strange dinner with this Egyptian ruler, but it's more than that. And so the narrative will continue. So if you have your Bibles open, look as it goes in Genesis chapter 44. Genesis 44, verse one. Then, the command, then he commanded the steward of the house, fill the men's sack with food as much as they can carry and put each man's money in the mouth of his sack and put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest with his money for grain. And he did as Joseph told him. As soon as the morning was light, the men were sent away with their donkeys. They had gone only a short distance from the city. Now Joseph said to a steward, up, follow after the men. And when you overtake them, say to them, why have you repaid evil for good? Is it not from this that my Lord drinks and by this that he practices divination? You have done evil in doing so. When he overtook them, he spoke these words to them. They said to him, why does my Lord speak such words as these? Far be it from your service to do such a thing. Behold, the money that we found in the mouth of our sack, we brought back to you from the land of Canaan. How then could we steal silver or gold from your Lord's house? Whichever of your servants is found with it shall die, and we also will be my Lord's servants. Verse 10, he said, let it be as you say, he who, who, he who is found with it shall be my servant, and the rest of you shall be innocent. Then each man quickly lowered his sack to the ground and each man opened his sack. And he searched beginning with the eldest and ending with the youngest and the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. Then they tore their clothes and every man loaded his donkey and they returned to the city. Verse 14, when Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, he was still there. They fell before him on the ground. Joseph said to them, what deed is this that you have done? Do you not know that a man like me can indeed practice divination? And Judah said, what shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? Or how can we clear ourselves? God has found, our guilt, found out the guilt of your servants. Behold, we are my Lord's servants, but we, also, but we and he also in whose hand the cup has been found. But he said, far be it from me that I should do so. Only the man in whom, whose hand the cup was found shall be my servant. But as for you, go up in peace to your father. Verse 18, then Judah went up to him and said, O oh my Lord, please let your servant speak a word in my Lord's ear, and let not your anger burn against your servant, for you are like Pharaoh himself. My Lord asked his servant, saying, Have you a father or a brother? And we said to my Lord, We have a father, an old man, and a young brother, the child of his old age. His brother is dead, and he alone is left of his mother's children, and his father loves him. Then you said to your servants, bring him down to me that I may set my eyes on him. We said to my Lord, the boy cannot leave his father for if he should leave his father, his father would die. Then you said to your servants, unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you shall not see my face again. When we went back to your servant, my father, we told him the words of my Lord. And when our father said, go again, buy us a little food, we said, we cannot go down. If our youngest brother goes with us, there, then we will go down. For we cannot see this man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. Verse 27. Then your servants, my father, said to us, you know that my wife bore me two sons. One left me and I said, surely he has been torn to pieces and I have never seen him since. 
If you take this one also from me and harm happens to him, you will bring down my gray hairs, even the shield. Verse 30, now therefore, as soon as I come to your servant, my father, and the boy is not with us, then as his life is bound up in the boy's life, as soon as he sees that the boy is not with us, he will die. And your servants will bring down the gray hairs of your servant, our father, with sorrow to Sheol. For your servant became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father, saying, if I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame for my father forever. Now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord and let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. We see in the first part, the brothers were amazed by grace in the palace, but in this chapter, who's the primary focus? Judah. Remember Judah? I told you to remember Judah. He's the brother that led the charge in selling the brothers into slavery. He's the one who conspired the plan about what they're going to tell their dad. He's the one that led in the lying to Jacob. He's the one who profited and bargained. He's the one who slept with his daughter-in-law, Tamar. Remember, he was changed. Apparently, God did a work in his heart. And from that dark moment with Tamar, we see a changed Judah. We saw some of it last time. Remember how he convinced Jacob to send Benjamin? He said, I'll be a pledge of safety for my brother. I'll bear the shame forever if something happens to him. Well, now in verse 40, chapter 45, the brothers find themselves in another predicament. They finish their meal with Joseph. Joseph sends them on their way, but he tests them again. He, he sneaks the silver cup of the palace into the, the bag of his, of, of his youngest brother, Benjamin. The brothers are on their way home, and he sends his servant, go find them and stop them, search their bags, and whoever is found with the cup shall be brought back and will be my servant forever. And as he's searching in the bags, everybody's thinking, nobody's taking it, but Please, God, if it's found in anyone, let it not be Benjamin. Why? Because if we don't bring Benjamin back, our dad is going to kill us and then he's going to die too. But sure enough, it's Benjamin's. And as Benjamin is found out, the rest of the chapter focuses on Judah pleading with Joseph to resolve the matter. Judah makes an appeal, and it's rather long. It's verses 18 to 32 of this chapter. He explains their situation. He explains the sorrow it's going to bring. He explains that their journey has been filled with trial upon trial, and he's promised to be a safety pledge for Benjamin. In short, Judah is saying all he can to rescue Benjamin. And all of his pleading culminates with a stunning statement in verse 33. He says, quote, now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord and let the boy go back with his brothers. Do you see what Judah's saying? It's clear as day. Please let me stay instead of him. Please let me take his place instead of him. Please, I will, I will bear his punish, punishment instead of him. 
Verse 33 of Genesis 44 is a beautiful statement of proposed substitution. And listen, it's stunning that it's coming from Judah. Remember how awful, what was it, Genesis 38, the stuff he did with Tamar? Remember how awful he was when Joseph's pleading for his life and Judah's just listening to the coins? Yes, he has changed indeed. Just catch this. In part one of the narrative, Judah offers to be a pledge of safety for his brother. And now in part two, Judah pledges to be a, or, 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 or commits to be a pledge of substitution. There's so much to be said concerning the details of what Judah says. But covering this large portion here, I believe this theme of this offered substitution is the theme that jumps out. But before looking at that, just, just look at Judah. Look at the grace of God in his life. Listen, I, whatever your past, I don't know your past, all of your past, but think of Judah's past. And now look at him in all the glorious grace that God gives him. I sold my brother into slavery and now I wanna be a substitute for this brother. Listen, there is, there is no one too far from God's grace. No matter what you've done, no matter what guilt you feel, no matter who you look at and say, they'll never be reached. No, Judah is a testimony of look at the grace of God in my life. He offers to be a substitute. Now, this, this motif of substitution is common throughout all scripture. You remember the woman and the, the pledge of the woman in Genesis 3, the promise that from the woman would come a seed who would crush the head of Satan? Who is that seed coming from the woman? Who is, who is the seed standing in the stead for? It's in the place of humanity, right? There's, there's gonna be a, a one who represents humanity and is gonna crush the evil one. You remember Abraham and Isaac, they're going up. Isaac's about to be sacrificed by his father, Abraham. And at the last moment, God calls out and Abraham, don't do it. And what is provided? A ram. You remember the Passover? At, if we go into Exodus, you will see that uh, the Passover, all the people, they're, they're fleeing out of Egypt the night before and the death angel passes over. Everybody, the, the, the sons are going to die. And how do they be delivered? How are they delivered? They put the blood of the lamb over the door and they substitute the blood's lamb for their own blood. A whole sacrificial system develops throughout the Old Testament where, yes, we can deal with sin by putting this animal in place. It's a motif that it goes all the way throughout Scripture that this substitution system is established in a sacrificial system and it all culminates in the sacrifice of Jesus being the final and complete sacrifice. So this pledge from Judah to be a substitute is a pledge that we see throughout all of scripture. And friends, it is no coincidence that Genesis begins with the theme of substitution in the line of Judah and then finishes with the theme of substitution in that same line fulfilled in Jesus. 
The books of the Bible are not scattered pearls like, oh, I found one really good one here in, in Ruth. And oh man, look at this one in 1 Samuel. No, the, the Bible is a string of pearls displaying the glory of God. Friends, do you know the specific grace of God to provide a substitute to stand in your place? If you're not a Christian this morning, if you don't know much about the Christian life, if, if you've been in church all your life, please hear this. How many times have I heard someone say, okay, this is what I believe the Christian faith is and it's anything but substitution? This is the fundamental foundational theme of all of Christianity. If you don't hear anything else about Christianity, hear this, God in his grace provides a substitute for sinners. And it's not like God just overlooks sin. It is not like he just ignores it. He lets it go unpunished. No, the God of the Bible is kind to provide someone to stand in our place, to, to take the punishment. And it's none other than his perfect son, Jesus Christ. If we were to summarize the fundamental work of Jesus to take our punishment as sinners, we could do so in four words. Dr. Schreiner introduced some of this last week. I want to hammer it home even more. Four words summarizes the fundamental work of Jesus to take the punishment of sinners. Intercessory, penal, substitutionary, atonement. Now you're like, man, those are big words. I'll never remember. Just Walk through it very carefully with me. Intercessory, penal, substitutionary, atonement. Intercessory, interceding for sinners to God. Penal, taking the penalty for sinners. Substitutionary, standing in the place of sinners. Atonement, completing the payment due. Jesus intercedes for sinners to take the penalty for their sin as he is their substitute to provide payment, intercessory, penal, substitutionary atonement. And isn't that what we see Judah modeling here for ben Benjamin? Interceding, offering his, take his punishment, sacrificing himself, providing payment for his price. Do you know of this work for you that Christ has done? Christianity is not fundamentally about cleaning up, measuring up, stepping up. Christianity is not about anything about us going up. Christianity is about God coming down, the person of his son, Jesus Christ, to be a substitute for sinners. Do you believe that? Do you believe that every bit of your sin was put on his back at Calvary? Do you believe that he paid for it in full and he showed it when he rose from the dead? Do you believe that? Jesus says that's the way to God. Believing that is true. It's the heart of the Christian faith. I want to close with this. Charles Wesley wrote a hymn in 1742 called Arise, My Soul, Arise. Many side sermon here. Listen to the words of this hymn and compare it to many of your modern songs, Christian songs you hear on the radio. And you tell me if we have depths like we had in some old hymns. There's a path I want to keep walking there. 
Listen to the words of arise, my soul arise. I'm sorry, one more thing. This is why song lyrics matter when we sing in church. This is why it's not about what we feel primarily, it's about what we know. Man, we can sing a lot of things over and over and over and it makes us feel great, but what is it saying about the Bible? What is it saying about the God of the Bible? Oh man, if you get the truth of God right in the words that you're singing, you will feel it. (laughs) And if it's not, then it's just our own heart problem. All right, back to this. Arise, my soul, arise. Listen to these words. Arise, my soul, arise. Shake off your guilty fears. The bleeding sacrifice in my behalf appears. Before the throne, my surety stands. Before the throne, my surety stands. My name is written on his hands. He ever lives above for me to intercede. His all redeeming love, his precious blood to plead. His blood atoned for every race. His blood atoned for every race and sprinkles now the throne of grace. Five bleeding wounds he bears, received on Calvary. They pour effectual prayers, they strongly plead for me. Forgive him, oh, forgive, they cry. Forgive him, oh, forgive, they cried. Nor let that ransom sinner die. My God is reconciled, his pardoning voice I hear. He owns me for his child. I can no longer fear. With confidence I now draw nigh. With confidence I now draw nigh. And Father, Abba, Father, cry. Do you know of Christ? Intercessory, penal, substitutionary atonement for you. Selfish Judah has become self-sacrificing Judah. And Joseph sees it in full color. Friends, look at the delight of grace that's just lavished upon us. Are you amazed by it? Do you know of its work? Let's pray. Oh God, I pray that we would be amazed by your grace. Forgive me, of where I just approach you casually or in an assuming way as though, yeah, I'm supposed to be here. No, God, please create in me a heart, unite in me a heart that fears your name. Stun us as we reflect upon your work on our behalf. I pray in Christ's name, amen.